Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. And joining us is our colleague, Jonathan Blanks. He's a research associate in Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, John. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Cato scholars all have an origin story of how they got into this stuff, this stuff being either libertarianism itself or their specific policy area that they focus on. But your origin story is particularly personal. So can you tell us how your background led you to do the kind of work you do today? So uh, for those who don't know, I am a criminal justice researcher in our project on criminal justice. I focus mainly on policing and what we call self-defeating policing, which is uh, the fact that police officers are often asked to do things that uh, antagonize the communities they're supposed to serve and uh, particularly in minority communities. Uh, I got into this uh, partially because my father was a police a police officer for 20 years in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And he taught me all sorts of things uh, about the job and, you know, his experience growing up in Indiana. And the reason why that's particularly pointed to what I do is because my father, uh, while I look very European, like my my mom's Irish uh, heritage has come very come uh, come through very strongly in my in my facial features. Um, my father is black, and so while I appear to be white to most people, uh, my father is uh, African American cop in Indiana uh, in the late 1950s through the 1970s, and so I had this very interesting. Uh, understanding of how police worked. Uh, my dad always covered his uh, always covered his car with law enforcement support stickers, which is basically a signal to say, "Don't pull me over." I'm one of you guys, <laughs> right? Um, he never thought that the system was, you know, necessarily fair. One of the things I remember very young at a very young age, my father told me, he said, "Because of who you are or what you are, basically, because you're black." You might have a harder time than other people, but you just have to move through it and uh, get through it and move on. And so that that stuck with me for a very long time. And I started, you know, as everyone as all, everyone in the building does, just read a lot of stuff. And while I never came into Ayn Rand until you know later in life, and really didn't dig it, frankly, um, I started reading like the autobiography of Malcolm X, and that book like changed the way I looked at everything. You know, here, you know, we're always talked about, you always hear about Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and everything's nonviolent. And here is a man standing up for what he believes. He talks about personal responsibility, just like my father told me, right? And it's like, you have a right to self-defense. You should, if you're uh, aggressed uh, against, uh, against your family, you're threatened, you don't turn the other cheek, you fight back because that's your right. And it's very tied closely to what we are also taught outside of, you know, what we call black studies or black history is the American way, right? You know, you're supposed to take care of yourself, supposed to take care of your family. You allowed the right to self-defense and you just have this, you know, these parallel streams, which you, when you think of how like Malcolm is portrayed in American culture, it's completely different. He's scared the hell out of white people. He was, you know, against the system. He was for violence. And that's like absolutely not true. His complaint mostly with the American system wasn't so much that um, the Constitution is wrong. It was the con that the American public was, excuse me, the American government was hypocritical by not applying the laws and the rules uh, to black people that everyone else had. And he's like, these are the same rules that you, that white people uh, have. Why don't we get to have them? Now, and Malcolm X, I don't know. I mean, I've, 
if you ever wrote anything about libertarianism, I imagine that you probably did not. I would not generally consider him a libertarian, but uh, he he did understand something I think is core to understanding libertarianism, which is power and its misuse and how people who are beaten down by the state, especially African-Americans in American history, uh, need to be able to defend themselves, need to have rights protected, all the things that you just mentioned. So it, nothing would – he might not have been a total libertarian, but he understood standing against the state. Yeah. I, I never I would want to say that Malcolm would be a libertarian if he was alive today. I, I generally don't uh, – like you know, applying the label to people you know after they're after uh, after they're dead, but um, but it was the way of looking at the world that even though that uh, and this is where I depart from a lot of black conservatives, where uh, a lot of people tend to think that well, the you, you will succeed if you work really hard and you let everything else go, and it'll and you know it'll all work out in the end, or it should work out in the end, right? Um, Malcolm was never denied that like the system was stacked against him. It never it never ignored that there were actual real systemic roadblocks to people having individual success. And I think that's very important to to think about when you're just saying, oh, you you come from the right perspective, you come you know from more of a free market thing, which I'm, uh, which also was something that Malcolm cared a lot about. Well, not so much the free market, but individual, but. Uh, uh, black-owned businesses and basically starting entrepreneurship and that sort of um, building the economy within the communities. And uh, just that disconnect between his reputation and what he was actually trying to say, it's actually much more aligned with the American dream than I think a lot of people realize. Is there – it seems like there is this this kind of stories of liberty and the way that people – can approach thinking about it, and so for a lot of a lot of libertarians um, who happen to be, I mean, just demographically, there's a lot of white people in libertarianism. It it tends to be, you know, people who are more educated, not lower class, and so on. Like because these are just the kind of people who get really interested in ideological politics and whatnot. Um, that that the story there and the kind of liberty that gets talked about there and the perspective on the relationship to the state is the state is kind of taker um, that the state wants to take from me the state wants to kind of restrict the options that I have in front of me whether that's like you know I want to open a certain kind of business and they regulations say no or I want to run my business in a certain way or I want to take a certain substance um, or I want to keep most of my paycheck or whatever but it's kind of the state as as this limiter but there's this other strain which I think is what you talk about that gets a lot of the times left out and I think it's I don't know that it's consciously left out, but it's just that like we tell stories from our own perspectives, right? And so it's this it's this strain of the state as oppressor, which is different from somewhat from the state as simply taker and restrictor, but the state as like this thing that has had its boot on your neck for all of your life, for the prior generations of people like you. Um, and that that's a I think it's a different and like a valuable perspective and one that particularly resonates with the kind of work that you do. Uh, yeah, I, I think that um, not trusting authority was something that was very – and the hypocrisy of the people who are in charge was, was very um, prevalent in Malcolm's writing and, and, his, and his speaking. And that sort of thing where – he said, "Well, you're going to have to get through it. You're, you're going to have to fight back." Now, he was a black nationalist for for uh, much of his uh, like uh, public life, and I'm not obviously advocating for that. But 
insofar as that it was the responsibility of the people who were oppressed to say, okay, you're going to have to take your freedom. You're going to have to go and you're going to have to do this. Um, even though they actually owe you, like, you know, they, they owe you more than this. They owe you the rights that they say they, that you, they, that you, uh, have on paper, the constitutional rights. These are supposed to apply to us, but they don't. Um, so it's not so much, uh, that, uh, the response that just because the the justice would the injustice in, excuse me in a in a just society the government would provide the rights that they're supposed to give but unfortunately that's not the way it is so it has so you have to build up from a from your within your community and your family and take care of yourself one of the aspects i think that african american history is pretty poignant on, and I use, when I do gun debates, I use this as something that we point Malcolm was well aware of. Uh, very common for big NRA conservatives to say, guns are there for me to protect myself against the government. I don't usually make this argument um, because people regard it as crazy if you're going to fight the US Army, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. And African-Americans have a pretty good story of, of why they needed guns at a specific time and, and even Malcolm X. Well, yeah. Uh, well before that, uh, my most prized possession is my father's – excuse me, uh, my grandfather's 38. Um, I was told – I was probably in my early 20s. I was at my aunt's house and it was me and my father and my aunt. And they were telling me about how um, at the time in, in Fort Wayne – the black families basically lived in like a three block area. You know, they had three blocks they could live on. And it, it wasn't by law, but various, uh, re yeah, restrictive covenants, that, that sort of thing we can maybe get into later. And because, uh, the Klan was home to, the Indiana was home to the, uh, the second resurgence of the Klan, uh, in the early 20th century, uh, they were very popular. They never run the government in Fort Wayne, but they ran most of the state at, at some point and, and most of, uh, both the state house and the governorship. But anyway, uh, years later, they would march, uh, up the black streets just as like a show of, of power. And so my grandfather would stand at the door of his, uh, of the house and call his, and call the kids in holding the gun. You know, that this was something that he was going to protect his family and that sort of, you know, the, yeah, the government's supposed to help you. But if you're going to have to de defend yourself, if if not, and that sort of thing. And it's like so that's my most prized possession. I won't sell it for anything. It's um, because that's something that was used to protect my family. Uh, and, you know, it's part of the reason why I'm here today. As far as I know, he never engaged in any fi in any firefights. But that it's that sense of responsibility that made that happen. But, you know, it. And that keep in mind that was early 20th century. My dad was born in 1928, right? So this is this is a long time ago. But even more recently, you have uh, basically the birth of gun control, which was uh, California's crackdown against the Black Panthers. And what the Black, Black Panthers did was like they read the Constitution too, and they said, uh, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna take our streets back from the police because we don't trust them, and they're they're gonna oppress us. And so they're walking around legally carrying rifles. And Ronald Reagan, the, gov the governor at the time, uh, and the uh, legislature passed laws to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. Um, so it's kind of funny to hear the NRA, you know, kind of turn around on this and, uh, you know, whatever's left of the mantle of Reagan that's in that that party is like, well, no, actually, you guys kind of started this. But um, that's, again, you know. Black Panthers were obviously socialists, but in, in many ways they were sort of a um, – and I'm not going to call them libertarian, but they acted in very libertarian ways. Um, they provided – they raised money to provide a school – a before school lunch program. That's – you know, that's private – that's private charity, right? Um, they were for 
uh, Second Amendment rights. They they read the Constitution. They're like, this is this is something that we're allowed to do. And again, it's that other this other kind of liberty that we, that I think often gets overlooked in in our discussions uh, in in the libertarian policy world because it's just like, oh, we just think of like what's going on here instead of how it's actually worked out through American history. Why is it then that 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 sort of liberty, that sort of liberty of the oppressed pushing back gets so kind of poo-pooed almost by a lot of conservatives and libertarians who look at it as the as kind of you know like if you just it's the it's the pull yourself up by your bootstraps like if you just you know went out and got a job and you just you know got an education and you just stopped dealing drugs and stopped you know muggings and shooting each other and the carnage of Chicago or whatever it is, um, things would be things would be better. Like there's this kind of pushing back against that, the experience that you just articulated and and saying instead that, you know, we're we're not going to acknowledge that and we're not going to acknowledge kind of the reaction to to the lived experience of oppression. Like is I mean, because you'd spend a lot of time talking to libertarians about race um and and the, the kind of intersection of race and police issues. So what's what's going on there? Like, why isn't that story seeming to resonate? Um, I think to back up just a little bit, I, I think part of it is how we understand how we look at the past in civil rights movements and and, and, and liberty in a, in our country. In one way, we 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 idolize the founders, and but kind of overlook the slavery that you know they brought with them in, into the into the Constitution and to the United States government. You look at the civil rights movement in the 1960s, skipping a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> that, that went on beforehand because a lot of times people think it's like, oh, there was slavery, there was emancipation, then Martin Luther King, and then everything's fine. But even in that very simplistic, uh, very oversimplistic formulation, we look back at Martin Luther King with this reverence that we that he was this great man, that he was a great leader, and he brought the moral core to a, a, a noble fight. And that, of course, we should celebrate his birth every year and and all that. When actually, at the time, he was looked at really no better than Black Lives Matter is today, right? That this is it was America's their white America's general reaction to any sort of non-white led like liberation movement is reflexive and negative. And so I think that's why when the Panthers were doing what they were doing and obviously the government, you know, cracked down on them, not only did they create, you know, gun control, they were the or origination of the first SWAT team uh, was there was California's reaction to, to their existence um, that generally no one wants to kind of wrestle with what our country has done in the name of freedom, the hypocrisy that has been that has been implemented from the government in the name of freedom. Um, today, it, I think it's really no different. You're, you're just sort of like, oh, it, it really can't be that bad. The laws aren't, you know, that bad. I mean, you know, my experience with police is great, but, you know, uh, but why, what are they complaining about? I bet you they're just, you know, these kids get shot and, you know, clearly they must be acting up because it doesn't register that to a lot of people and to white people who like live relatively comfortably that the system could still be screwing uh, individuals as much as it as it does. Um, I, I was talking to um, another policing a guy who's on the other side um, about uh, traffic stops. We were on a panel together, 
And I was just talking about how when black people get pulled over, like Philando Castile, for example, got pulled over like 49 times before he was shot and killed. He was getting abused before that happened, right? And only one of those, I think, was for a legitimate speeding violation. And I think one was for blowing a stop sign. Everything else, just about everything else he got pulled over for was some really specious violation. Weaving turn signal. Yeah. Yeah. Just really, just really weak stuff. And the idea, he was like, every time he he told me, he never really thought of it that way that, you know, uh, because he's an older white guy and he, he was just like, Every time a police officer's pulled me over, I, he had me dead to rights. I was doing something wrong. It never occurred to me that I would be pulled over and harassed for something I didn't do for, for no, for no good reason. And so even he, who opines on policing issues pretty regularly, hadn't really, hadn't really occurred to him that there is a different way that, um, both society and the government and po- policing in particular are viewed by people who live completely different lives in, in this country. You've said before, and I completely agree that if you wanted to stop certain policing practices and the drug war, for example, or at least mitigate the drug war, it it would be good to take the police who go to Anacostia, which is a very African-American neighborhood, and have them go shake down Georgetown for about a week and a half, throw people up against the walls, uh, do some random stops and searches, and you'd, you'd find, you know, as, about as many drugs. Uh, it'd be much more cocaine and high-end drugs perhaps, but uh, you'd find just as many drugs. Then suddenly everyone would say, let's end the drug war. But on that point, I mean, what is the reality in these heavily policed neighborhoods uh, that are in, in inner city neighborhoods? How are the cops viewed in these neighborhoods? Um, well, <clears throat> I don't think I ever suggested that, uh, that the officers go to Georgetown do it, but being facetious. Yeah, so. yes, of course. I don't think they should throw anyone up against the yeah, wall, yeah, including yeah, people in Georgetown. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, you just realize that uh, different neighborhoods in America get policed differently. And the fact of the matter is our, our cities are, are very segregated. Um, there's a bunch of reasons going into that. A lot of government policy, whether it was um, racial zoning in the early part of the 20th century, if you have redlining, which is you know the use of um, lending that had city maps and basically mar- demarcated where people of color would live and w- they wouldn't support loans there. It would only support loans for black people to live in those areas as opposed to in the white neighborhoods. And so they it artificially inflated property values in white neighborhoods and all that. But anyway, the legacy of that segregation exists today. And it within that, you have policing in different areas. And in the poor black areas of most very many cities in this country, whether it's DC, Baltimore, Chicago, you have a very aggressive police force that they they understand that there is a higher crime area there and there is violence very often. But instead of doing, you know, impl- uh, putting forth policies that uh, have been proven to work, which is very often something along the lines of just high visibility policing, uh, where you're just there, but you're not, you know, actively harassing people. But that's not that it's really hard to measure. Right. And so part of this gets into how a police department works, where um, they get measured on, you know, output, just like pretty much every other job that you have. And if you're just standing there or just sitting there, there's nothing to show for it. And so what you got to do is you make contacts and and they say, you know, that this is getting intelligence, you know, from the community and they don't mean it to be harassing necessarily, but it that's what ends up happening. Right. And they start talking to people and they ask them, you know, it's like, you don't mind if I search your car, do you mind if I search you for, for weapons or whatever? And so 
um, people are being stopped for very little, very minor, hardly almost made up reasons sometimes, and they resent it. And it and so they're shaken. You know, when uh, New York City stop and frisk happened uh, years ago, where at one year they stopped more young black men in New York than lived there. You know, that means they are stopping a lot of guys multiple times. That's harassment, straight up. And that um, there's no you know redress from that because it's policy. It's not they didn't violate the Constitution. I mean, depending on as, it, cur- as it currently stands. <laughs> as it currently stands, yeah. right? So. Um, there, there is very little redress, and so they, they, dist- police have eroded whatever trust in, in those communities. And so, when violence does happen, uh, there was a ten-year-old girl shot in, in D.C. or uh, in summer of last year, and you know they had inter- you know television interviews with people in that neighborhood. It was like we're not going to cooperate with the police because it's just like talking to another gang. You know, it was like we don't know what happened, but even if we did, we wouldn't talk to them. And that's a broken relationship where you're basically uh, punishing people for being young and black because that's who gets stopped more more often than not. And you're not actually solving the crimes that are actually making those places worse places to live. And so it's just a like, vicious cycle that um, perpetuates problems within those communities. Is that then the answer to – I mean a lot of particularly conservatives look at this and say but, but the reason the police are – to use your word, harassing people in these neighborhoods, the reason that they're pulling over black drivers, um, the reason that they have a stronger presence there than they do in Georgetown is because that's where the crime is. Like you look at – you know, there's maps of DC that have dots for wherever there was a shooting and it's all concentrated in the northeast in Anacostia, which happens to be the predominantly black neighborhood of DC, you know, that we – Black Americans are overrepresented in prisons for violent crimes. So that's just kind of – I mean it, that's what happens when people are more violent. So I mean how do you how do you respond to that and does, how does that fit into this – I mean is it is it all simply this kind of cycle of we – you know, the cops are harassing people and people – it makes people – don't want to trust the cops and it, the oppression kind of breeds discontent that manifests in certain ways. Are there – I mean what's going on there? Because it does from like an outsider's perspective. You look at it and you're like, well, yeah, these areas are more violent. Yeah, so two two different things going on. Um, the first part where you're saying you know, the, officer, the officers are there because that's where the crime is. That's true. But it's being able to say – all right, and so I think yes, of course you do police uh, Georgetown, which is a rich white shopping district, differently than you sh- than you uh, police Anacostia. But that doesn't mean anything you do in the name of that policing in Anacostia is okay. And because, uh, as Trevor alluded to earlier, where it's like they're not stopping kids and pulling guns on them and asking and you know. Uh, Asking them for consent to search them at gunpoint, uh, they're not doing that in Georgetown because they would never do. They would never get away with it. Um, but the Supreme Court says, well, it's still legal, and so you have this separate, unequal policing that's going on there that uh, you know that is judicially judicially tolerated. Um, so it's it's the style and the sort of lack of substantive rights that exist in in those high crime areas. Uh, and the second part. Um, the reasons why there are there are more violence in, in black communities and, and, and that sort of, very often not not in every single one and all that. Even when it the, the reasons are complicated. Um, you've got 
histories of oppression. You've got, um, you know, legacies of segregation. You have lack of access to transportation. You've got, you know, substandard schools, all these different the things. The drug war. The, the drug war. <laughs> Policing. I, mean, I, was trying, I was trying to like all the things that, that beyond, are not that. Okay. That are not that. <clears throat> and then you add the imposition of hostile policing and a delegitimization of what their rights are, of what they think their rights are supposed to be, right? Um, the system doesn't work and that they leave their neighborhood and come into Chinatown and all of a sudden cops are going to be on them just like, what are you doing around here? All that sort of stuff. You know, they get trailed wherever they go. You get trailed in the mall. They get trailed, you know, in, in stores. So it's not just a government thing. It's just like they get treated as a foreigner in their own city and not that you should treat foreigners like that, but you know what I'm saying? And so it's like a system that doesn't work, opportunities that are not there, um, mental health issues that aren't addressed, like a whole – just a cascade of reasons why that stuff's going on. But all that said, most of the people in those neighborhoods are law-abiding citizens. It's just – it's it's a – police who are on the beat there – I mean I've talked to them. I've done ride-alongs. They know that it is a very small minority of people who are, who are still exhibiting these pretty nasty problems, right? But uh, – the fact of the matter is, is and their but their response too often is, oh well, we're going to just look for them, and so we're just going to stop everyone and search for drugs or weapons or whatever. Um, the hit rates on stop and frisk or or similar programs like um, there's like a proactive um, traffic stop detail that was done in Little Rock, Arkansas, to get 50 weapons. They didn't even say they were guns. Uh, after a, a spate in violent crime, they had to make over 6,000 traffic stops in six months. That was just like insane. We also have, I think, the interesting observation made in Jill Aovey's ghetto side, which is that the honor culture and retribution killing and cycle of violence that happens in some of these inner cities because the state is not doing a good job of actually solving murders of, of black youth in particular. I think the astounding number was 38% of, of the 2,500 uh, murders of black youth in in LA over a 13 year period only 38% they even made an arrest and so there's no way to get so they're kind of lawless in the sense where you someone killed this person so you have a retribution killing and then you have a snitching killing and then you have a fighting killing and then you have all this stuff and and, if, and the state's not doing a good job of being the the monopoly on a legitimate use of violence in a geographic area to mitigate those circumstances. Yeah, and what I call the Leovi <clears throat> paradox. When she wrote that, she wrote uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal to promote her book, and she was like, "The police are very good at over policing small stuff and really terrible at doing the big stuff." And the thing is, is like the homicide detectives aren't the ones out there that are shaking people down and, and looking for guns and drugs um, and harassing people. They're they're honestly trying to do the right thing. But, but they have a stack of cases on their they desk. They have a stack of cases high. on their desk. They don't necessarily um, have the funding that, say, a narc squad does uh, because there's no money in solving murder. There's money in, you know, big drug busts, uh, civil forfeiture, all that sort of fun stuff. Um, so it, it, it's this – institution that's just like, okay, well, we're responding to our incentives, which is to get stuff done and make sure like we're looking at at stuff. I mean, getting we're getting stuff done and making arrests and all that, but it's not actually the arrests that count. How, how much of that difference that like those low clearance rates on the homicides are about the nature of the crimes? It, that, increasingly more, I think. Because that, that it's, I mean, a, a so it's one thing in if, if the murder like a, a wife is killed – 
you know, in a small town, you can be pretty certain, I mean, that it was probably someone she knew and very likely her husband, right? Like, so the, the pool of suspects is very small and is localized. You can solve these things. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of there's a wonderful essay by the detective novelist Raymond Chandler called The Simple Art of Murder, where he just goes off on British murder mysteries as he just can't stand them. And he says, like, the hardest, the hardest mystery to solve is the one that was just a random shooting in an alley where the person dropped the gun. Um, and and but that's what a lot of these crimes are. And so is it just these are really hard crimes to solve, and they just happen to be the ones that are concentrated in these communities? Um, yes and no. I I mean it, it's difficult to put a number on it. I, I'm certainly not capable of doing that. It's also but, it's also difficult to know things about unsolved crimes. But <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so, but insofar as um, you don't ha- it. You don't have that community cooperation. They're they're just not coming forward, and so and they're 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 fearful, but they also don't trust the police, and so it's just that just it's a reinforcing mechanism. And then when you are solving these other crimes, whether it's whether it's murder or burglary or or uh, some other violent crime, but when you're not uh, catching the offenders when they're committing one crime, they'll be emboldened to do it again, which is just going to be increasing the cycle of violence. In in the broader swath of American history, we, you, we personally discuss all the time different things that we should be more aware of in terms of black history as American history is because as Aaron alluded to previously, there is a disturbing ability for conservatives and even libertarians to say, well, we solved racism and, and slavery and we passed the Civil Rights Act, even if some people don't agree with the Civil Rights Act, but we passed the Civil Rights Act and now anything is on is on them. Well, or to simply say that it's – it's almost a category mistake to even talk about these issues. Is the pushback that from you know, so, libertarian from a, like when so when we post particularly your articles that you've written for libertarianism.org, which touch on a lot of these themes on Facebook, um, we get a lot of comments, and a lot of them are angry comments, and a lot of the angry comments take the form of like this is just about individual rights. Like you shouldn't be talking about issues in Black America, or we shouldn't be talking about issues that are about women or immigrants or you know minorities or whatever it's just individual rights and that's the only kind of lens through which we should view it and so as long as we respect individual rights done yeah so it, it this these arguments kind of follow a pattern over time and it's always sort of like oh you know it the, the sort of the conceit is well if we stop focusing on the fact that they're black and you know and people like Al Sharpton stopped telling people that they're being oppressed, they will not know it. You don't have, no one's telling Al, I mean, Al Sharpton isn't informing anyone that doesn't know it that the police treat black people differently, right? And that is just common everywhere, but it goes way, way back. Um, th- there is sort of a, you know, there, there's a, a movement now that libertarians are pushing up against and some libertarians, some libertarians are putting up against, uh, which is talking about sort of American racial capitalism. And that you know that this is sort of in the mold of supporting socialism, which is of course resurgent in American politics. That you know it's American capitalism because it was rooted in slavery, and it uh, you know and that and it affects so much to this day. There is a certain amount of truth to that. Uh, that certainly racism developed and was codified in American laws to support the institution of slavery, which got some people rich. Now, the economists can argue about whether or not empirically America got rich because of slavery or as some libertarians want to say it got rich in spite of slavery and it's like actually free market capitalism that, that kept it 
uh, free and that slavery is a drag on the economy. But nevertheless, it is absolutely true that slavery that ra- that American racism uh, is tied to slavery. And that has never really left us. It has become instead of just like the sort of economic tool of capitalism that or excuse me, the slave uh, the slave economies, it has become like a social a social issue that it's reflected in so many of our institutions, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's where we live. I said this the segregation, this is all coming down from people believing that uh, race is either endemic or like you know, in the early 20th century, you had like eugenics and this belief that, okay, the races are, you know, some races are good, some races are not so good. And it's just like, there was no point in American history where racism stopped being a problem. And, and there's no date. It wasn't 1968. It would kind of fly in the face of a lot of libertarian theory if it did, right? That you're not supposed to be able to change minds with laws, yet here we are. Um, so I, I think not understanding how pervasive, like just thinking of race as some sort of issue that like is going to change how people think about each other. Like, for example, when I tell people that I'm black, their idea of who I am changes. It's not necessarily always malicious. They're not like, oh, I don't want you to date my daughter, although that has, you know, certainly happened in my life. It's this, you know, it's just this social force that we have to reckon with. It's a history and we can try and get past it and we can be cognizant of it. But too often it's just sort of like, well, individual rights, you know, we shouldn't be thinking of, you know, we shouldn't think about these guys as a black guy, but it's like he gets treated differently because he's black and we should acknowledge that. I think some of the things that conservatives think is that um, when it's oversold and, it, and from the left, it can be oversold. Um, I was hanging out. I was on a speaking date at Federal Society speaking to her and I was hanging out with some of the, the law students and um, – and they were talking about how one of their professors was going on about how it's never been more dangerous to be a black man in the United States. And we're just like, it has been more dangerous to be a black man in the United States. You know, and they were they were saying they're trying to argue with her, like lynchings, you know, very common, exonerated, slavery, just name your period, you know, but she wouldn't hear it of it. She was said it's nothing has changed. Not everything is as bad as it's ever been. And sometimes from more from the left and from Black Lives Matter people, a movement I support, but it does seem like we, you know, there's we've made no progress since nineteen fifty five or nineteen thirty five. I mean it's it's not the same, right, as it was before. No, no. I mean things have gotten better. But in many ways, it's, you know, in different ways, it's gotten sort of worse, right? I mean, it's... Or at least more more insidious. Yeah, more yeah, more insidious. Yeah, I mean, I think the... Obviously, I think um, your average, um, you know, black American is, uh, you know, economically better off than, you know, 100 years ago, clearly. But the problem is, is like the number of black people with criminal records from this over-policing and over, and over-incarceration that we talk about, that's not insignificant, right? And that then that brings all of its attendant problems with hard, pr- hardships from getting jobs, trying to get places to live and all that sort of stuff. So there are still rules um, and there are still problems. Is it, is it Jim Crow South? No, of course not. Um, it's very unlikely um, outside of, you know, your, you know, little small sects of, um, you know, racist, you know, alt-right groups and that sort of thing that are occasionally – you know, engaging in violence. Um, but that's not the same thing as, you know, Emmett Till getting lynched for for allegedly whistling at a white woman, which he ended up not, he didn't do. So, so it's, it's, it's different and it's better, 
but that it shouldn't be that it's you know that there isn't still a long way to go. We're nowhere near the um, the equality and in, in just opportunity that we're talking about. And I, I want to I uh, sometimes cringe when I hear uh, libertarians say it's like, well, we believe in equal opportunity, but not equal outcomes. And I'm like, yeah, sure, that that makes sense in the abstract. But the fact of the matter is, it's not like we're born with tabula rasa and what you know the wealth of your family. Uh, is necessarily the wealth of mine uh, through intergenerational wealth transfers, through you know um, legacies of slavery, all these different issues, where you live, um, the poverty of that area, the job opportunities, transportation, all that sort of stuff uh, comes into it. And we, now we have these segregated pockets where we have a growing black middle class, which is great. But you know the people who get left behind, you know, are in somewhat are in pretty dire straits sometimes. And it doesn't mean that like there aren't, you know, white people in West Virginia that are also struggling with opioid addiction and, and, and jobless. They also, they and also don't have intergenerational wealth and they're yeah. also poor and stuff. Yeah. They also have hardships. So yeah. does the racial one make it different? Uh yeah, because it's the the system that doesn't treat you equally. That it's like um it the it, even if you're poor and, and you're white you know, I mean, sort of like the way that sort of divided the races back in the day. Like, you know, like there were a lot of poor whites that were living in that slave economy that were that were losing jobs because there was a slave economy. You know, it's like, well, at least, you know, at least I'm not black. And they obviously would use a different word. And, you know, that sort of thing, like that still is that still kind of exists, right? That, you know, that I think a lot of people in poor areas, not that the that, that police officers don't abuse their powers there too. That that's absolutely true. But that it's like they're not going to get – that the system is like set up against them pretty much across the board. I don't think that's the same – You know, it, it's the same. It's not that it, they don't have their own problems and just because that they are white doesn't mean like, oh, they're – to be the poorest white is better to be the like richest black. No, <laughs> not at all. But insofar as that when you have a systemic problem that is pervasive nationwide, it's like when you start looking at the disparity in statistics of policing and incarceration across the country – you would think there would be some deviation there that but no black people are overwhelmed like are overrepresented in incarceration all over the place in places like Wisconsin and Minnesota where they make a very small portion of the population very large i mean not like super large but like a, a very disproportionate amount in prisons um other places where there aren't any black people or hardly any black people at all you know you you learn about the history of being um excluded from there like if there's any place that's like really 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 white in in the united states something in the past probably made that happen like oregon like oregon yeah Yeah, oregon where it was illegal to be basically be a black person on property there in the oregon constitution of i believe 1849 uh it was pretty bad yeah i I was uh rereading uh preparing for this podcast i picked up color of law by richard rothstein again and was reminded of the fact that um over time after after the Civil War, uh, black people flocked to, to many places in the North and the West, including Montana. And it was a point where there were black people, significant number of black people in every county in Montana, never like a majority county or anything like that. But like they were all there. And then over time, they got squeezed out. And to the point where it's like, I think in, their, in the capital of uh, Montana, it's like one half of 1% now, even though it used to be like three and a half, four percent You know, that, that sort of thing. It's like either through you know, social pressure or the law or a combination of the two, like that black people have been, you know, 
shifted out of places sometimes when they started trying to make their own communities like Black Wall Street in Tulsa, right? You know, it was, um, you know, they, they were like, okay, we can't live with uh, the whites. So we're going to have our own, you know, ha- have our own area. You know, the white people bombed it and, and, and burned it to the ground and killed a lot of people. Um, that sort of thing, those, those legacies survive. And while it's not that um, the sundown towns that were throughout the north, particularly where, you know, sign that towns would have signs outside their their city saying, you know, uh, in not in much harsher terms, no black people after dark. Right. You know, that's people live, uh, you know, that affects where people live and what people there think of black people. And it. It doesn't mean everyone there is a racist, but they don't stop and think about why there aren't any black people around here. One of the other things that would seem to be a barrier to libertarians and conservatives listening to the the message of the experience of a lot of the the, the activists and the other people talking, most of the people talking about the kinds of issues that you're talking about now, is is the kind of the the leftism of these people like so Colin Kaepernick who I think history will look back on in admiration for starting the the kneeling thing just and, like Muhammad Ali um and and that the the reaction to his kneeling and other football players kneeling has been really repugnant in a lot of ways and and a lot of double standards of like you know I just wish that they would protest somewhere else like don't do it where I have to see it but I totally support <laughs> you know their their concerns about um but but even he, like I think he was in a press conference wearing a Che Guevara T-shirt, right? Like this this kind of hard leftism of a kind that is really anathema to the views of a lot of conservatives, or at least what used to be conservatives in because they tend to be economically a lot more left than they used to be now. Um, but a lot of libertarians, in particular, seems to go hand in hand with much of this stuff. So you said like the Black Panthers were socialists, and so on the one hand, like it seems to be confusing that you would if you're people who have really experienced how degrading and oppressive the state can be that you then think we should turn over more control to it over our economic lives and other things seems like an interesting possible dis- dissonance but also like just that that connection like that we want to listen to you but you're also saying that we should abolish the free market um and that we should you know we should do all these things that like we and our libertarian hearts know would be incredibly damaging um to everyone to everyone yeah right um, well, I, I'm not going to get into what people like that think, but I will say that the, part of the reason why um, it's uh, the history there is that you know back in the early 20th century, like before the first Red Scare, you know communists talk a good game, right? Like they were, you know, American capitalism was exclusive to white, cis, you know, cisgendered. Like couples, right? And mostly the men because the women mostly stayed home and and did the cleaning and all that. Um, the communists, on the other hand, were like, oh, you know, we believe in racial equality. We believe that it, it, it like, you know, the reason why people call uh, communist pinkos was it was a gay slur. And so it's that we hear you are oppressed in your in your free society. You know, you're not you know that you're being oppressed. You know that these things are working against you. Like, come come to us. Um, you know. Communism, you know, ebbed and flowed in the in the United States, but then, of course, you have the labor unions, and to the labor unions, which were once, you know, very exclusively white, that you know, you know, they try to get the minimum wage passed to price out black workers and all that sort of stuff. But to their credit, 
they were on the front lines in the the march on washington right it was the the march on washington for jobs and equality right that that they were holding up you know union signs right and so they went hand in hand with the modern black liberation right so it makes sense that as a political movement that the left is going to be uh connected to oh that pe- people will be sympathetic to the left because they they were fighting against the power that is, you know, the American right and its capitalist ways. And, you know, you also have the fact that uh, American right wing governments would, um, you know, depose pan like uh, – would uh, depose African leaders who were, you know, trying to throw off the yokes of colonialism. Um, You know, the United States sort of gave a wink and a nod to the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, who was a socialist, you know, in in Africa. Like – that sort of thing. It's like there is this hostility to the American right and it's like these, the socialists, whether or not their economics actually work, they, they, they talk a good game, right? And so I think uh, – and the belief that this, the capitalism is tied to you know, the oppression, which again has historical roots but sort of misses the point that uh, racism has grown past just the, the, the economic problem. But well, also that capitalism doesn't have to be – Tied to oppression, right? It right. was just in the sense that there were businesses that only could have been profitable because of slave labor, um, and they or they they would have, they, the economy would have been organized entirely differently than what it was if you had to pay for the labor at the prevailing wages. But that's not you know capitalism. It doesn't mean American capitalism inherently and necessarily was built on slavery. It just said we had slavery and then people were capitalists about it. So, yeah. which I think is a misconception on the left. To, in many ways, yeah, and but this isn't to say that the left always has it right, right? Oh I mean, no, no. It's like, I know you, you're not saying that. Yeah, no, yeah. so you, take, you still work at Cato. <laughs> yeah. So right, yeah. So I mean, take Bernie Sanders, right? He he, you know, he's very much in that old socialist mold. It's class, not race. We'll talk a good game to get you know uh, to get black people into the fold, but then we're like, oh no, the problem is really the man. It's it's, it's the state. I mean, excuse me, it's uh, it's it's capitalists. It's the the power class, and we need we need to take their money and redistribute it, and you know, and this and we'll be able to get you know support ourselves with our living wages and 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 uh, healthcare and and all that. But the fact of the matter is, is like he was, you know, kind of dragged into talking about race issues because he didn't want to do it. And that's still a problem. If you don't tackle the race issues and you somehow just make capitalism, American capitalism go away, do you think American socialism is going to be is going to be as colorblind as they would like to make it? I don't think so. And so it's really a matter of being able to look at what it is that like separating the racism from the economics and say, okay. Uh, economics and free markets should be – we should be talking about how to use these to empower black people to get take more control of their lives, to being able to say, OK, it, it's sort of in this Malcolm mold, right? Where you're just like, all right, the government is not here to, is not here to protect you. You should be able to have a better options to get a job and to save your money and to do these things that we know you want to do. And uh, it's a matter of messaging. It's a matter of, um, you know – Finding ways to make this happen, um, you know, school choice obviously is is very popular. Uh, that, you know, it's like okay, so the government schools failed you. Here's an option out, and being able to um, to facilitate that, and that, and, and being able to say, this is a this is a market driven thing. You don't have to call it a market a market issue. I said, the Black Panthers, you know kind of libertarian but you know you would never they would never call that and if they just like hey we want to be socialists that privately fund these lunches it's fine by me and being able to just 
really um, help people empower themselves. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.